0: Welcome to Elixir Wizards, podcast brought to you by Smart Logic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. My name is Justice Epen, and I'll be your host today. I'm joined by my cool as a cucumber co-host, Sunday Mint, and my professional as a platypus producer, Eric Ostrich.
1: Hello.
2: Hello there.
0: Okay, really glad we're on to season six. This is the premiere, the pilot. the the first episode of season six. We're very excited to be launching this. Today's guest is a luminary who needs no introduction. One of the inventors of Erlang, probably the best qualified person in the world to define the word beam, which is what we're talking about this season. Season seven is all about beam magic. We're taking a look at what gets handled under the hood with elixir and other languages that run on the beam, talking about how much magic is the right amount. There are a lot of strongly held opinions about this. So we're really looking forward to this season. It's going to be, Exciting, dramatic, hot, hot, hot. I can't wait for it. Basically, we want to dig into what is hidden by programming languages and talk about how people find varying levels of functionality and abstraction, whether it's useful, problematic, magical, and of course, the beam, the virtual machine. Great. So today we've got Robert Verding on the show. How are you? Hi, I'm, fi- I'm fine. By the way, what have you got against platypuses? What did I say? He's a professional as a platypus? I said that I'm, I'm implying that platypuses are extremely professional.
1: <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah.
0: I, I, I just see platypuses like like as akin to penguins where they just seem like they're buttoned up, you know, really <laughs> put together. Platypuses are party in the front, part, party
1: in the back, I guess. I, I don't know. Uh, I, I grew up in Australia. That's why I was wondering, right? Okay. So that's why. Oh, you're from Australia. Originally. Well, I'm Swedish, but I, my, I grew up in Australia because my father was working there for a Swedish, Swedish company. Swedish by way of Australia. And
0: where are you calling in from today? Stockholm. Stockholm. So I, I live
1: and, I live and work in Stockholm now.
0: Very nice. Very nice. Well, I think we've had other folks on the show from Stockholm before. I cannot remember who it was, but we definitely had stories about Stockholm. Think yeah, yeah.
2: Twitch stream, maybe? Johanna was previously from Stockholm. I think she might be in London now, but maybe moved back. I don't know. So no.
1: Oh, yeah, there are quite a few of us
2: here. So, in Stockholm, so yeah.
0: Well, Robert, we wanted to open this conversation by asking the
1: question what is the Erlang rationale? The document as a whole was that um, I was thinking around 2000 something, four or five, whatever. I realized that we'd never really said why, why we were doing things. So, I, I talked to Joe about this as well, too, Joe Armstrong. And he's thought a bit and he said, no, we haven't, have we? So there, there was a book out, a couple of editions of people using it, products, doing it and things like this for it. But there was no, no real dis- or saying why it looked like it does. And that's what I tried to put together in the rationale to say, why, why, why is it like it is? Right, to Try and explain a bit of, anyway, why it looks like it does, why it does some things and doesn't do some other things as well. That, that was the main goal for it.
0: And could you maybe take us through uh, some of the highlights of the rationale?
1: Well, I mean, some things, I mean, why is a lot of concurrency there? Why do we have processes? Because that's the type of thing we, would, we were doing, right? We wanted things to be able to handle errors, which means, for example, processes should be isolated. Because if you have processes working together with things and one process crashes, it might ruin the data for another process, which you can't do. So they need to be isolated in some way. That's, things like this came up for it. And then we, we decided we'd have processes and we'd have data. And they wouldn't mix in some sense. They're two different sides of both of the same thing. And then we decided well, we want to do, we want to build fault tolerance systems and things are going to go wrong. Of course, they always do. I mean, you might just accept the fact things are going to go wrong. So, how can you build systems that can handle errors, can detect and handle errors? So, that's why that came in for it. And uh, then there were a lot lot of other things that came along as well in in the language, what we're discussing about. I mean, some things we inherited from Prologue. I mean, the original system was written as an interpreter written in Prologue. We inherited things from that. I mean, some of the syntax comes from there. The bits people complain about the semicolons and the, and the capital, capital variables starting with capital letters. They come from Prologue and the dot and a lot of other things as well, too, features that are in there. And it also it also described a few other things that was going on, how we ended up doing I.O., for example this front end for it. I mean, you know, if, you, if you run Alang or run Alexia as well for that matter and press Control-G in the browser, it pops up into a little little thing and they ask you to if you, if you do a command if you try that. And then if you put a question mark, you can do do various commands there. It's a little front end for multiple tasks at the same time in the same system and collecting remotes and things like the remote shells and things like this as well to try to explain these things, what was going on in our heads while we're doing it. And as I said, I talked to Joe about it and we 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 realized that Joe, Mike, and me, Mike Williams, the third guy in the the original group, we'd thought so much about this that we thought all this was self-evident. Of course it looks like this. It could not look like anything else. And that's why we never wrote it down or never wrote down the reasons for it if I put it this way. The descriptions of it, of course, but never the reasons for it. And that's why the, the rationale came.
2: You've mentioned Joe Armstrong a few times. For our audience who maybe isn't as familiar with the origin story of Erlang, can you speak a little to who is Joe Armstrong and, and how that the three of you kind of got together?
1: Yeah, so Joe Armstrong, he was a colleague and a good friend of mine as well, too. He, he died last year, unfortunately. So we had met at Ericsson. We were working for Ericsson at, those, at that time had a small computer science lab, and we started working, we were working there. Mike was one of the people who formed the lab. I came in a year or so later and Joe came in a year after that. So we met through the computer science lab working there. And we were looking at the computer science lab was looking at things like how we can um, introduce new technology into Ericsson and things like this for it. And amongst other things, how, how could we make better program the, the switches they were doing? I mean, they had some very successful switches with no problems there, but they were quite complex to keep up. And how could, how could we improve that? And that's what eventually became our language, among other things. So we met through the computer science lab.
2: We've heard, you know, a lot of the, the legend of Joe Armstrong. Is there any, you know, fun story that maybe hasn't come up yet and any talks <laughs> yet that you want to share? I
1: don't know. We were always arguing. I mean, Mike, Joe, Mike, and I were always arguing about things, right? I mean, it, it, it wasn't a very nice, smooth path. Our language ended up coming through with a lot of arguments going on. Classically, we sat in three rooms beside each other shouting at each other, right? Uh, so that, 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 we arrived at, uh, at a very good end. I mean, um, I can say they were positive arguments. They were arguments that were going somewhere, not just being negative.
2: Debates, as we call them. We could call it debates,
1: yes. We could call it debates. Yes. Discussing so you're saying issues, that you were all programmers? Yeah, we, we were <laughs> Yeah. So we, we had a lot of fun that, and I remember Joe and I would often take long walks during, during lunch. So we were out in the Stockholm suburb. We'd take a long walk there and discuss things, both work and personal things and private stuff. We'd have long walks for you. and I mean, a lot of things went backwards and forwards when we are discussing work. And, that. and sometimes things just end up where they happen to be and otherwise we make choices. I mean, if, if anyone's interested, there's a classic one. And that's if you send a, I mean, you can have a process ID and you can send messages to it. What happens if the process has died? We had a long discussion, what should happen if you send a message to a process that died? Should it just disappear or should you get some signal back saying the process has died and the discussions went backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. And finally we ended up saying, well, the message just thrown away. That's not – you have to keep track of processes. The system's not going to do that for you. But that was a discussion that went a long time backwards and forwards. There were other things like this as well too. Variable scoping. Do we have variable scoping or don't we have variable scoping, etc. cetera, et cetera. It was a very productive lot set of discussions and um, well, we all were friends personally as well too. So the families were friends and things like this. I can just say one thing, his his two children were born in the same years as my 12, just children. I don't know if there's any, I don't see anything deep in it, but yes. <laughs>
0: but yes, I feel like there's a lot of questioning there. I mean, do they become friends? Or are they
1: like, like cousins or? We were, the families were friends. I mean, they had. They, they, we lived in different parts of Stockholm, so it wasn't that close. It wasn't that physically close in any way. But we were friends. We met. We met and think like this. Well, we still do. I mean, we still meet with Joe's wife and his children occasionally.
0: So, Robert, I'm going to ask you to dig a little bit further back into your early career becoming a computer scientist. Can you talk a little bit about your training and maybe tell the narrative all the way up until the point of getting a job at Ericsson and putting yourself in that room with those two other guys?
1: I'm self-taught, basically everything. I think I did a three-week course along the whole progress that was much later, but otherwise it's self-taught. I originally started taking a PhD in physics, theoretical physics in Stockholm, and they got their own computer. They weren't using the, the, the university's computer system. We're talking late 70s here. This is a long, long time ago. And seeing I was a PhD student, I had free access to that and a very helpful and friendly system administrator. And I discovered a program uh, together with a few other colleagues as well, too, at the same time. And that's how I got into programming. So so I, I bought a book on uh, writing games in BASIC. And also this was a VAX VMS and they, they ran BASIC, so I implemented a few games. Yes, That was fun. I mean, you write the game, then you run it once and done. But um, then one of the games was too big, so I couldn't do it in basic on the system, so I had to do another language, of course, the, best, the last and best game, of course. So I, learned, I taught myself Fortran, and a mixture of Fortran 77 and Fortran 4. It was running on the machine. It was there, right? So I learned that. That was quite fun, actually. And then the physics department started getting knowledge of me that I was doing programming, and I was teaching myself Pascal at the same time and i helped them convert a few programs from fortran to pascal for student use and things the student programs things like this and um doing some taking part in some steward student projects doing writing assembler code VAX assembler and z80 assembler doing things yes that was a lot of fun as well too but that that, that was that was more or less self-taught as i was saying, i was doing projects for the physics department as well but then we both realized i wasn't going to become a physicist so i might as well just we sort of friendly. I just in a friendly way I left, and one of my colleagues, he had was work. He started working for Ericsson, and he, he said there was a job. There, there, there was there was a place I could look. For. I could try one position at Ericsson I could look at. So I looked at that, and that's where I started working for Ericsson. And that wasn't at the computer science lab. That was for a small team in Stockholm managing Ericsson's VAX VMS computers in the Stockholm area. That's what it was doing, and that left me time to do other things. So I started doing fun projects for me. I things I thought were fun. I ported Franz Lisp from Berkeley Unix to VMS. That, I was probably the only user of it, but that was quite fun actually, because it taught me, it also taught me operating systems because the Franz Lisp system we used it was very close and explicitly used the Unix system function. So I had to write, rewrite those for VMS and stuff like that. And I think that's that's how the computer science lab got a hold of me or found out about me and then I went to them after a
0: I'm sorry, Fran, Franz Lisp
1: isn't the composer? I'm- Lisp. It's a, it's a Lisp dialect. Oh, okay. oh it's, you can, I think you can still find it. It's, um, it's still around somewhere. I, just,
2: I had to Google it, and then uh, Google auto suggested to the, the correct thing. I think. Yeah. So yeah, there'll, there'll be a link to the Wikipedia France page. Lisp.
1: France Lisp, and the, the, um, the compiler was called Lisp with a Z in there. Right? So yes. So it's the whole thing for it. It, it was a quite a fun system, but it taught me quite a lot about operating systems. And interfacing, so I I, I wrote some, rewrote a lot of the um, uh, Unix system functions, calling in VMS system functions instead and in a reasonable way. So I ran. It, wasn't, it, wasn't like, it was it wasn't that. It was was fun doing it.
2: Justice looks like he has like five questions. I,
0: well, I do have one in particular. It's very perpendicular to this line, which is that if you're studying theoretical physics, I think that a lot of people are, especially if you're not a sophisticated computer scientist, you might be wondering about physical simulation you're at the intersection of these two things so what can you tell us about like h- how far are we from
1: simulating a universe on, a, on a <laughs> we need a bit more power <laughs> <laughs> we need a bit more power there <laughs> they were doing symbolic simulations at, at, the, at the physics department that that's why they got their new computer because they, they want to run very large background jobs for it. Uh, i never really got into that and so i sort of I got it, well, I left physics part, but before I got that far doing it, but that, that's why I was doing it. That's also why I started learning Lisp as well, too, because that's what they were using.
0: Do, do you see it as a fruitful direction of inquiry?
1: Yeah, fine. I think I think um, you need just need to work out how far you can get. I mean, uh, to do to, to do a reasonable simulation. Right? I mean, if you start looking at the real world, there's a lot of stuff in there. I mean, if, even if you look in your brain, you, there's an awful lot of neurons running in your brain. Right? And if you try and simulate though, that, that's not that's not a trivial thing to do. You can, you can do it, of course. You can look at it, and other things in looking at physics as well too. You just have to understand what it is you're actually simulating, or what your simulation show is showing. Right? I, this. I think that I think that's that's a difficult part. I, I've never really gone into that afterwards, but um, well, a bit of AI, but that's about it. But,
0: yeah, so I'm self-taught. Somehow I expect that your never having gone into the thing is still like an order of magnitude more understanding than the average. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, yeah, if you, get, if you think something's fun and you've got time to, to put, put some effort into it, you do pick up quite a lot. You just have to realize what's going on there right? and uh, try and work out, just try and get a feel for what, what the subject actually is. If nothing else to see, I mean, trivial things. Am I interested or not? I mean, you, until you look at things, you don't really know. Sometimes things things sound very interesting, but you start looking at them and they're really boring. And sometimes you get things extremely. They sound extremely boring, but when you start looking into them, they're actually very interesting. You just have to get in a bit to find out what's going on and how to how to work with them. That well, I was very lucky with that. Both I had time at the physics department. Well, before I left. And also, when I got to the computer science lab at Ericsson, they were looking at new technology. That was one of the things I was supposed to be doing, which means you had to go in and look at new stuff along the way, which was, well, which was what I was doing privately anyway. So, yeah, that was good.
2: Can, you, uh, can, you, can we fast forward to when you first heard the word Erlang? Where were you? What was going on?
1: That was at the computer science lab in Ericsson. And we've been doing other things. So Erlang Al, is the name of a Danish mathematician, was the name of Danish mathematician who, who did work on um, networking, net, network reliability and network capacity and things like this. He was, he was a mathematician on that. So from that point of view, working, using the name Erlang in, 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 in a telecoms company was very, very relevant. We actually used the name before the language. And the first time I remember we used it was we gave a talk the logic programming conference in eighty six in Salt Lake City. And there we presented a system running telecoms using concurrent logic, parallel logic, and that we call our system Our Lang. So we got the name first, we just inherit we just kept using it when we got into the our Lang language. So that that it's somewhere around then that's the first time I heard of Airlang for when we started using it.
0: So it wasn't one of the three of you that proposed the name, it came from this project that you had I can't
1: I can't I honestly can't remember. I honestly can't remember where we got the name from in that sense. Right? That's that's the first time I remember we actually using it. You can still find it in papers on it. But that, we might, we probably came earlier anyway. As well too. Some people say it, it stands for Ericsson language, but you, that no, it wasn't. It was a mathematician. This was the 80s, right? You named your programming languages after dead mathematicians. Right? So, so, thank you for disabusing everyone in
0: the audience <laughs> of that uh, false notion. So if we want to define another term, and this is really important because your definition will set the tone for the rest of this season.
1: Okay. And so we no want to know. No.
0: <laughs> It'd be hilarious if you just made something up entirely. That would be really funny. Don't do that though. Don't um, know. <laughs> what is
1: the beam? Okay. The beam, it's a virtual machine to run, Alan. No, that's the simple answer. It says everything and says nothing. It stands for Bogdan's Erlang Abstract Machine. That was actually the second virtual machine we we did for Erlang. The first one was called the JAM, Joe's Abstract Machine. Literally, that that was used, right? So he designed that, and um, Mike Williams, he implemented it in C. So Bogdan Hausman, he was a person, another guy working at the lab, and he was looking at making an improved, better virtual machine, a faster virtual machine. And that's what, that's what the, what the beam was. Originally, it generated C code, which was then compiled around. That had to be dropped after a that. while. But that's what the, that's where the beam stand, where the name comes from when it came around. Sometime in 92, 93, I think, it was something like this. That's the first versions of the beam. Probably the only thing I left is still, that's still the same as the name. I mean, it's totally been rewritten. I don't know how many times internally. Extremely improved an awful lot over the last twenty, thirty, twenty-five, thirty years.
0: And for people who are self-taught, like yourself, perhaps in web development, and because the whole notion of the virtual machine, when you start using something like Elixir, is abstracted away from you. So, what what does it mean for it to be a virtual machine? What
1: what is happening that would be useful okay. to the average developer? So. Yeah, so it's a virtual machine, like any other. Com- like any other processor, it has a set of instructions and a set of ways of handling data for it. And when you compile down your code, you compile down to those instructions, that that vir- that machine instruction. It's a virtual machine, virtual in the sense that there's no real processor, there's no Allen processor down there. There were actually attempts to make one, but never got around to it. never got that far. But it, so it's a virtual machine. So with the virtual set of instructions, handling of data and things like this. for example. And then, of course, you have to implement that machine in something. So that machine is implemented in C, a sort of standard classic C, and that, that's how you run it. But when you compile your Align code, your Alexia code, for that matter, as well, of course, you compile it down to the Beam virtual machine instructions, which are then implemented, which are then emulated and run in, in, the, um, in the machine. It, it, it's... It's an extremely specific machine for running Erlang. Uh, by the way, most of the, most of the time I say Erlang here. Everything I'll say will apply for Elixir as well. Because for those who don't know, Elixir compiles down to Erlang, which then compiles down to. I
2: B. think that's a very important distinction to make up front because a lot of our audiences are Elixir developers who maybe haven't dug too much into Erlang and understand the relationship between the two. So thank you for pointing that yeah, out.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, 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 that's, nothing, that's nothing wrong. That, that's, that's, that's the right choice, to be honest. So yeah, so the Beam imp runs Owling. That's what it's designed through. It's very specific for running Owling. The connection between the Beam and Owling is very tight. And uh, Elixir, when that's compiled, is compiled down to ourlang code, which is then compiled down to Beam code. That's why a lot of things in Elixir look like they do, because it's running on top of Erlang it can't do very much else. Not if you want to do it efficiently. Anyway.
2: I think we ran into this yesterday while prepping a script. There's, I actually found out that there was, there's two abstract formats, possibly. So there's the Erlang abstract format, which I think Elixir is in, and then there's also something called Core Erlang. So, is there well, the a, Erlang abstract
1: syntax, that's what Erlang parses is down to. And that That's what Elixir generates. LFE does, generates that as well, for that matter. And that, that's then passed into the Erlang compiler to generate BIM code. Core Alley is, it's more like an internal language in the compiler. You can write core yourself. You can generate core yourself. I've done it and other people do it as well too, and then pass it into the back end of the compiler. It's mainly used as an internal language in, inside the compiler. Actually, it's a proper functional, it's a, it's a small proper functional language. You can actually write it yourself and you can print it out and get the compiler to generate it for you and show what it looks like and things like this as well too. It's just some things have been simplified. Well. Made more standard functional. For example, it has variable scoping and things like this for as well. You,
0: you mentioned LFE. Do you want to define that and, and talk a little bit about it
1: as well? Ah, okay. Yeah, LFE—that's Lisp flavored Alec. I'm—I'm a Lisp'er. Okay. Once you love the parentheses, then it never goes away. It was actually the first high-level language I learned. It never got into being Alec syntax, which is probably lucky. I thought it'd be fun to try and implement a Lisp on top of Alec. In the sense that it would it would be a it would be a real list, but it would be adapted to running on top of the of Erlang and the Beam. and in that sense could interact with everything else running there. It keeps, there's no problem calling Erlang code or elixir code or being called, but for me the reason having things written in both systems running in all three languages or more running at the same time, it just works. And that that again was a design decision that meant that that it was a bit different from many lists. I mean, for example. There is no mutable data, because our does not have mutable data, and the beam does not support mutable data. That's just the way it works, right? But that's why the, that's why you don't have mutable data in Elixir. because it's running on top of a system which doesn't support it.
2: And that was a conscious decision you all made as one of those arguments back and forth, or was that sort of a unanimous decision?
1: It sort of happened. I think I think that's probably well. I mean, we were running the first versions of, of our language were implemented interpreter written in Prolog, and Prolog has immutable data. They have very vari- they have logical variables which are sort of halfway in between, but otherwise it's immutable data. So that, that's what we that's what we end up getting, and um, that's what we end up having. If I put it this way, we just we kept that. And we found that that was a perfectly good decision design decision we we made. There was no there was no reason to change it. It made things like keeping processes isolated much easier because actually processes can share data, but because the data is immutable, no process can ruin anything anything for anything else. We, we, we kept that and thought that that was a quite a good choice. In many ways, it results in much cleaner code. For example, I know that if I pass data into a function, that function can never change that data. Nothing can change under my feet. None of my data can change under my feet because it's immutable. So if I'm past data into a function and I want something, it, it, it's going to modify it. It has to return the updated value to me. And I can throw that away I can keep it, whatever, but I can't change things. And that makes a lot of things much cleaner. It's, it's easy to understand what's
2: going on. This is getting to the good stuff because we've talked about on this podcast a number of times about how we feel that Elixir code renders... To cleaner code writing, and we've never really been able to pinpoint all the way down to maybe the origin story of why that feels that way. And now we're talking to the literal creator (laughs) of the underlying foundation, and you say the same things. So that's a really interesting point. It,
1: It is. I mean, one of the it's it's it is easier to write understandable systems. I think if things don't change under you. If I can see exactly when things can change and when things can't change, so, so I think that's that, I think that's very that's a very good idea for it. One of the things one of the things we had I don't know if I mentioned the rationale, but one of the ideas we had from the very, very early on we want to try and keep things simple and explicit, and not have things happening behind you. That's why, for example, the only way processes communicate is by sending messages to each other. There's no there are no backdoors at all between processes. That's the only way they can do it. That's how they synchronize. That's how they pass data and things like this, for as well too. Again, because it's extremely explicit. And that's what we felt with having the immutable, having immutable data. That that was a very beneficial. Okay, I, I, do, I mean, I do a lot of training, and I realize that's one of the problems new people coming to this environment have is the fact that they're used to having, not used to having immutable data. And it does take a bit of getting around around the first things.
0: While we're on that topic, especially as it pertains to Erlang, what are the biggest hurdles you see to people who are learning erlang and and if maybe you can help us who are new to erlang leap some of those hurdles yeah
1: what i see what i've seen is the functional side that that, that erlang, and alexia for that matter of course because it's on top of it it, it is a functional language it's a, in many ways that the sequential languages are typical functional languages. And anything, most things you'll learn other function languages to apply to our language Elixir as well. There uh, are many ways if it's simpler, but therefore, and I think that getting used to that is a big step. Get, getting used to passing data into a function and getting value coming back for it and not having to, not being very difficult to reference things outside which you haven't been given as arguments and stuff like that. Once you get used to it, it's, it's self evident, it's clear. I look at my function, what can it work with? It's arguments, right? Anything else? No. Are there any uh, are there any global variables no are there module data no it's just that uh, I think that that's but once you're used to it, it's fine the other thing is a concurrency thinking concurrently I mean mo- okay you're sitting running your operating system and you have processes and you can run things I can run a couple of browsers and stuff like this for us so I can do things concurrently but not at the level you can do it you can do it in the outline system on top of the thing. Just this this very thing of splitting things up into small processes that are interacting with each other and communicating with each other. That I think is a very big step once you start thinking about it. Now I mean I mean a lot of times and tools things like that will hide it for you. I mean I mean if if you run Phoenix, you you might have a hundred thousand connections, and Phoenix is quite happily well using cowboy underlying layers quite happily starts up a couple of processes per connection for you. You don't see that, but it's doing it. For you. And that's fine until you have to uh, have, to, have to really understand what's going on. But I think that's 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 the next step, a big step. It's just think this is how you split your system up into lots of little processes interacting with each other. And if you go back to the telecoms, people, when we we're working there, the idea was when you make a call, you will have a few processes on running the A side and a few processes running the B side, talking with each other. This is just for a simple call. And you just split things up like this. That takes some getting used to. And as I said, I mean, typically when you're using libraries or packages, they'll do that for you, like Phoenix or Ecto, things
0: like this. Which brings us to the second half of our theme, which is magic. <laughs> uh,
2: doing things for you.
0: What is magic
1: in your view? And is it good? Is it bad? How do you evaluate it? Magic is fine if you, if you understand what, what is going on. So, I mean, for example, we're talking concurrency. I can run up, I can run up one beam, one node, and I can run, literally run millions of processes on that. And in some way, that, that's magic. I mean, you pick an operating system where you can run millions of processes, you're not going to find one. That might be magic. Right? And that allows you to do a lot of very fun things. But at the same time, you have to, know, you have to understand what's going on so you can use it in the right way. That that's what I'm saying. It's, it's both. That's both the magic side of it and the non-magic side of it. And understand, okay, I, I can run all these processes, which is fantastic. I can have my system with a hundred thousand connections, TCP connections coming into my browser, which is great. But what restrictions does it give me? For example, for example, these connections by default can't talk to each other. I can I can make them talk to each other, but I explicitly have to realize this is going on and then use that feature for it. How can I share data? Well, I have to write something that shares data for me in some way. I just can't pass send a reference to to another process and have it access the data. It can't do that. So, I have a lot of these things that come in. For it. You have to you have to understand. If you can understand, if you understand what's going on, you can use it in the right way. Then you can better understand the packages you're using that to, to do things for you. Why they're good at some things and they have limitations for doing other things as well. Too. I mean, talking web web, web browsers, I mean, you can use Phoenix to do that. And we'll do a lot of all this stuff for you for setting up the system, for running multiple processes for each connection, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Which is great, right? But you have to understand that sometimes you hit the stage and if you don't understand what's going on underneath, you're not going to really get strange behavior. Right? Why can't I just create some data here and and another process can access it for me? In a real system, see, or Java or whatever, I can do that. Why can't I do it here? That takes a bit to get used to.
0: So this has already been one of the most educational episodes I think we've done so far. Um, I still have a number of questions. I think the most useful one will be, a- again, I think a lot of people getting into the Elixir land are from Ruby. They're people who are used to a different paradigm, object-oriented p- programming, and just totally different ecosystem. And so I try to give them an on-ramp to Elixir and Erlang. I'm wondering if you can maybe help by suggesting how a new developer in this ecosystem can get the best stylistic practices under their belt. Where do they look? What are the main things to keep in mind when you're writing Erlang and Elixir code?
1: I think one of the things that Jose has said about Elixir since the very beginning, right? It is not Ruby on Rails. It might, it might, it might have taken a bit of the syntax from there, but it is actually, it, it is a different language for it. It is a different language, a different system. You can't just accept the fact. Get used to it, accept the fact that you cannot write your old Ruby code in Elixir and run it and hope it works. What right? it does the same thing. That's a, a, a big psychological step to do that for. Get used to that and, and do it and understand that 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 means. Again, this is very much my opinion here, but even if you're using packages, do things for you, which is fine, right that that, that's good. You do need some understanding of what's going on underneath it. maybe even just at a very simple level so you can understand what's going on here it, it, it is not the same thing. you have to understand, you have to have a slight understanding of what's going on, not in the sense that you can't use the packages or anything, but it's a little bit if you come too top down, you don't understand what's going on underneath. And in many cases, you can get quite far doing that because the packages you're using will handle all that for you. But eventually, you hit the stage where it doesn't work anymore. I want to do something else, and suddenly it's behaving, from my point of view, very strangely. And I have to understand what's going on. That's something you need to do. You need to understand that you have this problem, problem this way, or issue, not make before it becomes a problem.
2: When you mentioned Jose, it actually gave me a question. Where were you and what was your kind of impression when you heard when you first heard the announcement for Elixir, you know, a new programming language built on top of Erlang? Just curious what your thoughts were at that time.
1: Okay. Being an old Erlanger, my first question was why? How could
2: you possibly approve <laughs> of <on> this?
1: <laughs> why? <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now now you're talking to me. You'd implement two extra languages, three extra languages on top of that already. So I I think doing it for the fun of doing it is a perfectly valid reason. I know he wasn't doing it that for that reason, but but that that was my question. Why? What what was he trying to do? Why do this? Why introduce this way for what different things will it give you to do that? And in many ways, you could see it diverged from the Alan side quite a lot on, on not just the language size, but the culture side, the community and things like this, how the community worked and what they expected. Things it was very different from the Alan community of those days.
2: I'm actually curious what the community differences are now.
1: They're probably becoming less in some ways. I mean, a very, a very simple example of difference. I mean, the mixed tool came very early with Alexi. I don't know which version, but it's extremely early for it. And that was just something that people that came into that community expected there to be a build tool. Whereas in the Ailing site took 10, 15 years before we got a build tool. And it's just what you're expecting, the type of systems you're building, where people come from on this type of thing. That meant a lot. I think that, that that was one reason for doing it. And if I remember rightly, he said he loved Erlang, but he wanted to fix he wanted to fix the things he felt were missing not just build tools, but in the language itself and stuff like this as well. And I think you can see a lot of difference in the community. For example, the number of packages you can find for doing things in Elixir. An enormous number of them, right, compared to what you can find now where they're much fewer. And I think, I think again, I think that's partially a cultural and a type of system that's being used in. And, that, that again, that affects what you expect to happen, right? what you expect to be there or will be there or won't be there and how you feel if you can't find it. Classic one is, I don't know if this is true or not. This is one of these generalizations you hear that people come into Alexia and they said, okay, if I can't pop up a browser window in one hour, I'm not interested.
2: That's a fair point. A lot, yeah. I've heard that from a few. Yeah, yeah
1: I, I, as I said, it's one thing, I don't know if it's true or not, But but to, but to do that, of course you can't then you can't write an elixir then you expect the, these packages to be available for you so you just plug them together and run things like that that's a completely different size work whereas if you're running working in a project that might take five years a week or two it doesn't really make much difference against just different different cultures different expectations and stuff like this
2: interesting so was there a moment that you actually got to use Elixir that you were intrigued by it? Or was it sort of like a why the entire time that like you, you heard it and you're like, why change it? Yeah,
1: I've got an answer to the why, right? That was pretty clear once you start looking at it. What, what house worked and things like this. Right? That, that's pretty clear. It didn't help me for the type of systems I was doing. Okay, I'll put it this way. It didn't give me everything for it. And being an implementation person, of course, I look at the implementation and to see what's going on underneath it and think how, how things are done and stuff like this, how it gets around various issues. I mean, a simple one, for example, is that you can't. there are no user-defined data types. That's it, right? The Beam, the Allen system, the Beam does not provide user-defined data types at all. They're just not there. So there, there are things like that about what, what the system provides, what users expect, what type of things they're going to do with it and stuff like this. That's just from my point of view, I wasn't looking at things like that. And, of course, as I said, being an implementer, you start looking at the language itself. Right? When I write a with, why can't, why can't I put the first thing on the line afterwards and indent it two lines? I know why. I know why, by the way. So I know the reason. For, I know the answer to this. But why can't I do that? I would want to do that. And there's a lot of other things like this. I know the reason for them. There are things like this when you start looking at the language from an, from an implementer's point of view.
2: Kind of along those lines with that thought process. Can you tell us about your side project Erlog? Well, that
1: was that was an ex- it, it was an experiment that to write a prologue in Alec. Again, write write a standard prologue in standard Alec, and not, not do anything strange or anything like this, or you, or write stuff in C and put plug it into the machine. Just write standard Alec for it, and that was an experiment doing that. Uh, it works quite well. It's not very fast, but it's, it's just, it, it is an interpreter. Not, it doesn't compile down. But it does do a full subset of standard out, standard prologue. And it can handle the database in the right way and think like oh, this as well, too, which is not that trivial to do in Alan, to be honest. And so that was just more a fun project to do that. It's its there. It works, but I haven't worked, I haven't worked for a bit. The LFE was, I love Lisp. That's the, that's, to get back to that, that's why. So I had to have a Lisp on it.
2: Amazing. Well, that passion generates a lot of productivity for others. So
1: Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, Oh no, we're wondering a bit about it. Uh, Lisp a fun language. I mean, it's old. I mean, what's it? It's 50 60, 50, 60 years old something like this for it, but it's still very, it's still a very powerful and simple language for you You can do awful lot of stuff. in It It just works. Right? And as I said, I like implementing languages. for. You.
2: For fun. Yeah. Speaking of fun things, this came up at Codebeam during one of the Toucan Lounge chats that, I mean, it came up at your talk as mm-hmm. well, but the Erlang movie, <laughs> we heard that you had <laughs> thoughts about it and we wanted to know what your thoughts were about it.
1: <laughs> the old one, the original, that I think, I can't remember exactly, I think that came about because we were going to present Erlang at some trade show or something like this, and we just wanted something to show it for it so we so we made this movie and Ericsson had, had a movie team that helped us do that and yeah it became quite funny it wasn't meant to be funny we were quite serious when we were making this, about the about the, about the message we were sending across food. We, were trying, we were actually quite serious with that and then it became very very weird stuff right note one thing however joe and mike just sit there talking i'm the only one who actually does some coding and fixes the bugs was that true was that true to real life
2: <laughs> amazing
1: <laughs> it, it does have a slight Monty Python feel to it, but yes, <laughs> yeah. Then when Garrett Smith came up with with, with the sequel, that that is fantastic. I, I really love that one. That that is really good. That's really good done. I like that. I think it was a bit nervous originally how we, how we would feel about this, but that was really fun. Or it is really funny, well thought.
0: We'd like to give the guest the last word, but I want to ask one more question, which is about the future and what your aspirations are for the future of the community, for your work in the community.
1: Yeah. I I think, well, I'm still working. I work for Align Solutions, okay? And um, I mainly do training and things around that, a bit of consulting as well, too. And I enjoy that. I plan to keep on going. I, of course, hope the Ourlang community will continue. And I'm talking Alang community. I mean the, the whole community of all the languages running on top of the Beam in this case. For that to work, they have to, co- they have to collaborate more. We, we have the Alang Ecosystem Foundation, which is doing a lot of this work, and I think that's a very important thing to get, to get these things together to make, to make it easier to use, use them all on, on top of the Ourlang system, just make it easier to pick packages from other languages and use those as well too. Why can't I run Phoenix from Alang? Well, I know I can, but things like this, for just, or Ecto or stuff like this and going the other way, That I think that would be something um, which would be very useful and good to do that. So I think I think that's very important for the future to do that, and I think that that will make each of the languages more powerful for it. A while back, there, there was a tendency for them to split. I think that would have been worse for both of them. Again, this is getting out to some people about five years ago, talking to Elixir people, and they say, well, can't we just get rid of our language? And, well, you can't because that then then you've got rid of elixir, of course, but and I think that that's getting this realization that they work together that they they can improve each other and and make it for it. Um, having a powerful elixir community running elixir helps the airline community, which helps the elixir community, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera for I mean, I know there have been discussions can't we can't we which whoever we happens to be here, write our own virtual machine? And of course, you can. It's just a bit of code to get the same level. Well, it's a few thousand, tens of thousands of lines of code, but it's just a bit of C, right? But I mean, if you get that level of goodness in the system, in the beam. You get right to your own. That is an awful lot of work. I think they're put. They're putting an awful lot of really smart stuff in there continually. I think I think one one thing I just get one thing you note if you look at it from the Alang point of view the Alang language itself is very stable it it evolves but very slowly and if you if you don't understand what's going on you can get the impression no work's been done but there's an awful lot of work being done in the beam every new version of the beam has something fantastic in it over, over the last one and especially I can just put a plug in version 20, OTP twenty four that's coming now right? soon soon that has got some really good stuff in it. There's there's a JIT compiler built into the system now. There was the old hype, but now there's built in it. And that that is really fantastic. I just have to say this. But it it works the other way. So when you're running this, the the compiler still generates Beam code, Beam assembler. Then when it's loaded into the system, it's converted to to assembler code at the load time, which means when I'm compiling my system, I don't have to worry about who's going to run it because it runs on all of them, but the loader does it for it. And that's just so, so fantastic. I mean, there's a slight increase in code size, around 10%, which is very small. The efficiency is sort of 5 to 10 to 20 times faster for many things. It just goes, wham, right? And again, that is something you as a user don't see. So I don't see it in my code. It's just there, and there are a lot of things that happened that have happened over the years in the Beam, that there have been continual internal improvements that are just happening. If you don't look, you don't see them. And so there's a lot of work going on there as well, too. I think that's, I think that's really great. That, I hope, will, will continue, and that, of course, will benefit all the languages because, again, Elixir doesn't have to think about it because it just generates a allen Allen code, which just gets all this stuff for free. It's just it's wonderful. Wow. Wow, this has been such a great yeah. conversation. Uh, sorry, go ahead. There are a couple of good blogs describing that system now about the new the, the Asimjit, I think they call it. It's it's really it's really great. It's um it's very impressive,
0: to be honest. Actually, my last section here is for to offer you the opportunity to make any like final plugs or asks for the audience anything that you want the listener to go do. Shameless self promotion is encouraged. So feel free. Uh, <laughs> do you have any, anything else like that before we wrap up?
1: Well, of course, being an old listener, don't be scared of parentheses. I, I know this is, this, is very, this is very different from the Elixir side where you remove parentheses. I say put them all back again and put a couple more in for good points for it. It makes the syntax much easier. <laughs> You're not get used to it. I, lo- I like that. I sincerely hope the Allen system will keep going. I mean, the Allen system, the ecosystem foundation, the whole lot here will keep going and keep working together to improve to improve these things for well. That's that is, that is for running lua. So I was looking originally started as an as an experiment to implement a language on top of the Alang system which did not have Alang semantics. Explicitly was different with different memory management. It's got glo- it's got shared global mutable data. Everything the Alang system doesn't have, it's got that. And a few other weird stuff as well too. So there was an implementation of that. And that was that was quite fun to do but now it's actually being seriously being used which is slightly nerve-wracking again that that's there if, if you want to run things in Lua and you want to be able to plug them into our efficiently and easily into the Alan system that's a way of doing it. and i can say it's being used well two places i know of. one it's a, in a bank and they, they are a serious bank as well too they're not just they're an old they're an old bank it's, it's the otp bank and i'm not kidding you about the name it's the OTP bank. It's a Hungarian bank, one of the bigger ones in, in in Eastern Europe, former Eastern Europe. They're using that internally for doing scripting, and it's uh, by a company called I think it's called Creative Assembly. They do, they're, they're a gaming company, oh, which war game Total War. They're the, whole, they're the whole Total War series. They're not using it in the game side itself, but they're using it to allow to allow users um, to to customize their their environments in Lua, of course, to do that. Lua
0: seems to have been become very popular among game developers in particular.
1: It is, it was for World of Warcraft as well for customizing that you'd write things in Lua as well too. It's just really, really spread there. It's quite a nice little language to be honest. It's a nice little language. As I said, it's very different. It's not functional well. If you read what Lua is, it's basically everything. Pick something and Lua does it for you. What I find is impressive, they managed to keep the language small. That they make new stuff, but they resisted making very big changes for it and keeping it small. And it's a very powerful language as well, too. It's just managed to pick a very nice little set of fundamental principles that are very powerful. For. That's why I like it. I, I like Lua as well. Now I can't show it, but I've, I've got my spaceships written in Lua as well, too. <laughs> Your spaceships. It, it's a very simple little demo. One of the things running LuaL is that that you're running this in Erlang, so you can start up uh, you can start lots of little world systems. So it's running spaceships, and each spaceship's customized is programmed in in Lua, and it's it's an Erlang process. So you're running two thousand Erlang spaceships, and each one's an Erlang process running talking customized in Lua, and that works fine. You could run more if you want to as well. too. the final push is that one benefit of running Lua in LuaL inside Erlang is the integration is very tight. You could you could run an external law and talk with it, but uh, of course, then, then the integration is much more difficult to do. Wow, Robert, I feel like we could do a
0: three or four hour long podcast with you, and ho- and maybe <laughs> one day yeah, you have to turn Well, we'll, we'll no, we'd love to have you back, and next time we will, I think, plan more time. It's conversations like this that humble me and remind me that we stand on the shoulders of giants, and that we wouldn't be able to do the work that we do without brilliant, brilliant people who have come before us and put in a ton of legwork. So thank you so much for everything that you've done.
1: Okay, Th- thank you. That was that was a lot of fun. So yes. Oh, it's great. Have, just hope to get the sound working properly now and then it's fine.
0: That's it for this episode of Elixir Wizards. Thank you again to our guest, Robert Verding, for joining us today. Elixir Wizards is a Smart Logic production. Today's hosts include myself, Justice Epen, my co-host Sunday Mint, and our producer is Eric Ostrich. Our executive producer is Rose Burt. We get production and promotion assistance from Michelle McFadden and Ashley Stotz. Here at Smart Logic, we build custom web and mobile software. We're always looking to take on new projects. We work in Elixir, Rails, React, Kubernetes, and React Native. If you need a piece of custom software, hit us up. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Follow at SmartLogic on Twitter for news and episode announcements. You can also join us on the Elixir Wizards Discord. Just head over to the podcast page to find the link. And don't forget to join us again next week for more beam
1: magic.